Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. And a special welcome to our end of year roundup, where we unwrap a selection box of our favourite clips from the year past and reflect on conversations that have stuck in the mind, conversations that have changed our minds and conversations that have amused us. To help chew the Cumbrian cud, I'm in a suitably socially distant studio in the frost-white meadows north of Kendal, and I'm in the company of author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. It's great to be back again. And also Lakeland Walker editor John Manning. Hello, John. Good afternoon. Helping us for the second time with our look back at the year past. It's the highlight of my year. I suppose it is the highlight of this year. Nothing else has happened. (laughs) (laughs) So over the next hour and a bit, we're going to pick some favourite moments from our 18 shows of 2020. We're talking Herdwicks and Mountain Rescue. We're wandering from Newlands to Malastang. We're reflecting on Beatrix Potter and Dorothy Wordsworth. We'll discuss how COVID has changed our relationship with walking and with our local communities. And we'll be making New Year's resolutions in the company of, among others, Sue Allen, James Rebanks, Julia Aglianby, Bill Burkett, Steve Matthews, Bill Lloyd and... Henny Bradshaw. But before any of that, we're going to rewind in time to those innocent days before COVID hit in a wintry wander up Piers Gill. What is it about Piers Gill that causes quite so much problems? The thing about Piers Gill is there's very, very few ways in and out. As rescuers, we have our own location that uh, we know where we can actually traverse in. But coming in from the top, There's a couple of waterfall pitches that you could slither down, but you'd never slither back up again. And so you're drawn into it. And people uh, will tend to follow rivers because rivers always end up in the valley bottom. But Piers Gill, as with many gills, uh, they're not the things to follow. And this is an accident black spot. We've had a number of fatalities while I've been in the team, a number of many close shaves. So yes, it's, uh, it's a nasty place to be. Uh, unless you're a a climber and you like getting wet in summer. That's Lake District Search and Mountain Rescue Association chairman and Wasdale team member Richard Warren. And Mark, that's your choice of clip there, The Ascent of Piers Gill. Yeah, well, this is one of those intriguing ones because if you start from Wasdale Head, everybody tends to go up Lingmel Gill. Uh, That's where the main flow of walkers are. But those who start from Wasdale Head itself are drawn up by Burnthwaite and then they look at the map and they think, well, do I go up to Stiehead or do I go up that more exciting way, more slightly more direct way up Piers Gill? Fine if it's the summer weather. There is a rock step going up that way, but it gets you up to Lingmel Colon, up to the mountain, that's fine. But it's in the reverse that things start going pear-shaped. This is on the way down, isn't it? Oh, on the way down from Scorfell Pike. Yeah, this is, this is the nub of all the issues to do with Scorfell Pike, strictly. Mm. Number one, in the foggy weather, if you're not used to using a compass and you just get engrossed in conversation with whoever you're with, you go up on that rocky summit and you climb down from it and you've just slightly forgotten which way you'd arrived, mm. you can so easily be drawn by the cairns because there are various cairns and uh, g- drift slightly left, as it were, and you c- 
come down to Mickledore, where there's a stretcher box. Mm. And if you're not quite with it, your mind can be thinking, oh, well, this must be Stye Head. And then they think, oh, if I'm there, I turn left to get down to Walsdale. And you end up going all the way down by Cam Spouted to Eskdale. So in the completely wrong <laughs> valley. I have to say, I've done that, actually. I had a, a freak out moment leaving the summit of Scarfell Pike in the mist and looking down at the valley below when we got out of the cloud cover and thinking, I, I don't know where I am at all and it's it's easily it's easily done I do, uh, how do you feel about this john have you had uh, i also had a, a, a an emergency exit from the summit of scarfell pike ah. i think it was a june and it must have been 30 years ago when i was on the summit and all of a sudden um there was a violent hailstorm i didn't particularly want to hang around so i went off to without even looking at my map took the fastest path possible um uh, and also ended up down in Estelle, actually, yes. Right. Uh, miles and miles and miles away, but but I had my youth on my side. I walked back. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but, uh, but not Piers Gill. I would veer as far away from Piers Gill as possible. Because that comes into play if you're going down towards Lingmel Col. Just before you get to the Col, you've got this point of bifurcation where you've got a path that leads you down into Hollow Stones to the left. Yeah which is the main body of traffic, and then there's a corridor route which comes in from the... goes off to the right. Actually, the Hollowstones path isn't as obvious as you might think. If you go there in clear weather, it's all obvious, but in mist, it's not obvious. And in fact, it was my contention that the big stones that are there, they ought to have, like, like they have in the Alps, a blazing mark saying Wasdale and Borodale. Controversial yeah. mark. And that's a controversial <laughs> one. But so many issues occur there. I think, I think it's a life-saving thing. I think that's, that is a very good idea. Something very discreet. And they are in the Alps. They're not yeah. quite postage stamp, but maybe postcard size. We're, we're not talking here, Mark, are we, about finger posts? And... No, no, it's just a simple little thing on the rock <coughs> as they na- a little yeah. blazing mark saying Wasdale... Corridor route. Did we raise this question with Richard? Yes, and he said, I think it was the National Trust resisted the whole notion of marking anything on the fells. But there again, you are dealing with one particular mountain that has all sorts of issues and it brings in life and death issues. And of course, if you take the corridor route, the right hand one, and you come down to that awkward step across the headwaters of Piers Gill. Yeah. And you cross over and you think, oh, actually, I could take a shorter route from here. Well, this is the big issue. It's like the, what's that alpine plant, carnivorous plant? Because that's what Piers Gill's like. It draws you down. You've got this lure of this bouldery gill. Oh, like a a picture plant. Yeah, you just go into it and you think, oh, this must be the safe one. If you're in the mist, you think, oh, it's a gill. Gills always lead into the valley. Yeah, this one does. But wow, it doesn't have go to some waterfalls and some sheer cliffs. Mm. And it, it really is nasty, nasty. This is where that little discreet information Radical as it may seem, there's lots of little discrete radical things you can do that can make a big difference. Discrete radicalism. I'm sure we'll come back to that later on in the podcast, but we're now moving on to lockdown. It hits in March, and we didn't quite know what to do, did we, Mark? But we discovered Zoom, like the rest of the world, and we thought the show must go on. And our first post-lockdown chat was with Catherine Alto, uh, who spoke about Dorothy Wordsworth, her heroine, 
Uh, and then I've got another little clip here as well, which is from later on in the year, Dr. Kerry Andrews, who also picked Dorothy for her love, really, of local walking. I think for me, Dorothy Wordsworth is one of the writers that speaks to me, in part because she doesn't... I mean, she, she loves going up a hill. She loves climbing to the top of Scarfell. She's very accomplished and very physically capable, and I probably wouldn't have been able to keep up with her. But I also like that she gives equal priority to local walking, to the familiar, to the, the lower level, the homely. And I think when we look at mountain literature, the sorts of walking that gets prioritised is the grand, the adventurous, the dangerous. And I think Dorothy's writing reminds us that there is enormous meaning and power in the local and the familiar and that re-walking the same path over and again can be just as profound as conquering you know, whatever unknown peak it is, that there's something particularly special about keeping it local and being at home. I think this quarantine that we're in right now is allowing people a moment to reset, which is really interesting, and go outside for their walks that we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> That's how I integrate walks almost daily. Um, and if I don't, I have a bad day. Catherine Alto there reflecting on daily walks. And John, for you, lockdown, all that meant, was that a chance for you to rediscover local walking uh, certainly yeah um i think this year I've, i think i've only been on the lake district fells twice all year um most of my walks this time have been uh on ingleborough which is the hill behind the village in which i live um up on Wernside. and of course initially in lockdown if you remember there was a lot of uh, concern that people touching styles going through gates might might be a cause of spreading the infection so out of respect for our neighborhood farmers we stuck to the lanes and and made some fantastic discoveries there mm. we've we've got boxes of slows in the freezer waiting to be turned into slow gin um we found badger dung pits at the roadside where we no idea there were badgers there and things like that and we started to see our home landscape through different eyes if you like i've worn these boots out. you can see these boots they've got <laughs> no soul left on them now um and that's just because we've walked hundreds of miles of tarmac this year, instead of instead of going up on the fell tops. So you've been following slow waves. Oh dear, he's doing it again. <laughs> Your point about the roads was absolutely right, and I have to say that was one of the great joys for me of lockdown. Was basically you could wander around the lakes as people did back in Alfred Wainwright's day, and I, I know we we talked about this, didn't we, Mark? We will never see that again. That quietness. It was a tough time, of course it was, but there were upsides to it and, and for me rediscovering local being able to just walk along the roads and the lanes of lakeland how about for you mark yeah this notion of roaming from home it's it was the way to do it then and actually i think it might become far more the way people will be discovering the slow ways on your doorstep people have traditionally gone wandering locally but that's only been a particular kind of person who's done it now people who have been used to jumping in their car and driving 100 miles, well, perhaps they think, actually, I still want the exercise, and actually something on my doorstep, wow, that's an interesting discovery. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have this realisation, actually, there is something special about my domestic environment that deserves to be appreciated as being vernacularly important to my life. And it's building that sense of place that you can really only discover on your feet. John, Mark mentions that there could be a, a long-term outcome here, which is that love of local and um, 
perhaps getting in the car less often. What do you think about that? Do you think that's something we will see? Or do you think when the vaccine's in us, you think we might return to old ways? Um, I think for an area such as the Lake District, which is where we're concerning ourselves with, it's inevitable that we're not going to see that that lessening of traffic for much longer. I think once the vaccine's in everybody's elbows, they'll be returning to the Lake District in droves and people will be chomping at the bit to get back into the fells. One one of the nice things that I've noticed in our area... um, is the fact that although the restrictions aren't as severe as they were early on, people are still walking the lanes. Mm. It's almost like disco- some people have discovered a new activity. So I think that, that might be something that stays with us, that a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise go walking have discovered it. There was a sense of um, you felt obliged to go for a walk, didn't you? Once the government started saying you can go for a walk right. uh, within so many miles, everybody thought, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and out they went, and they're sort of like, we've never done this before. Yeah, where, where, um, where I live, in the <laughs> Pennines, uh, we suddenly saw all sorts of people who... We were getting lost on very simple paths. <laughs> yes. Because they, yeah. they were just coming out of Carlisle and so on. A lot of people haven't got the benefits of where I live, or you live, John, where you can walk straight out into wonderful countryside immediately. Yeah. But they live probably only 10 miles, let's say, from some kind of countryside that's worth exploring, and they have never thought of doing it. I do hope that it will encourage people to, to, to holiday at home a lot more. Mm. Um, well, that helps the economy anyway. Exactly. Well, I mean, the, the economy is going to need a mega boost once this is all over. Yes. You know, uh, the White Lion's just, in Patterdale's just announced that it's not going to be opening its doors for a few weeks now. Um, and small places like that, they, mm. they, they're going to struggle. And it, mm. it's such a shame because... There is much part of the Lakeland experience as going out on the fells and, and everything. And we need folk to stay at home when it's all over, spend the money at home and, and rejuvenate these places. The little places where they have little pubs on village shops, they need a little yeah. bit more boosting than the local indigenous population can give them so that people need to be able to draw and around. Of course, the, the conundrum is that that brings back the traffic. So. Mm. You know, seven months ago, me and Steph and the kids, we could walk down the middle of the A65 all day long. You know, it was, we've lost that already, haven't yes. we? I think the government's got to address that and, and bodies like the National Park Authority have got to address traffic management. They need some blue sky thinking thrown into that because mm. we, we cannot continue no. with, uh, with things as they are in that respect. We will come back to, to some of those issues sure. raised there, John. Um, for now, we're staying with walking and we're staying with Kerry. And this is one of the most succinct descriptions of why I personally love walking. Uh, so this is Kerry. I, I like the fact that if I just keep putting my feet in front of the other, I will eventually get anywhere that I can climb anything. To f- see things that you can't see anywhere else. And the sunset we're currently witnessing being a prime example, just the magnificent light, the early autumn light, is just terrific. And, and only by walking up here can you see that. So I think that's one of the reasons why I love walking, is it just opens up these unexpected and very beautiful moments that live long in the memory. Unexpected moments that live long in the memory. What a lovely yeah. way of thinking about walking. And certainly for me, she's put it better than, than I ever could. I'm wondering about specific lockdown walks now then. And if you remember, that there were all these rules, weren't there? You could only kind of walk for an hour uh, for, for a little bit. And then there was this concern. You've mentioned the concern about contaminating yourself on gates and this Yeah, or this spreading kind of thing. the contamination, of course. Which... That's right. Yeah, yeah. And in rural communities, that was important. But 
One of the other things is we didn't want to bother the mountain rescue with unnecessary call-outs and stuff like yeah. that. But it did change, didn't it? We were suddenly allowed to off the leash to go for kind of full-day walks again. And I'm wondering, John, did you celebrate with a long walk? No, I think I've played it a little bit differently to a lot of people. We've, we've tried to stick to, not the rules, because I, th- I think the rules and the regulations and the laws have swapped and changed so much that it's become confusing. So we've tried to stick to what we believe is the right thing to do. So we haven't been out for big walks. Um, I did treat myself to a 12-mile walk around the lanes, but I paid for that physically afterwards <laughs> in ways I won't describe. Uh, and I, I did take myself off over over Ingleborough one day and walk back over Twistleton Scar, which was absolutely magical. Oh, absolutely. Um, and Mark, what was your, your first big post-lockdown walk? Can you remember? Right. Because I was finishing off these, these mega books for Cicerone to Coniston Fells and Keswick North, the Skidder and Blencathra. I actually had about 18 big walks to do mm. in that period up until end of October. Uh, great experiences because almost nobody up there apart from locals. Well, you've been one of the very, very rare people in Britain, Mark, as a guidebook writer who has a legitimate work reason <laughs> to be on the fellows. <laughs> I was proudly strutting around knowing that I was, yeah, this is a wage-earning job. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not just my wages, it's a, a big publisher's uh, expectancy for this deadline. So <laughs> I was doing it properly, uh, very respectfully and uh, appreciatively, but I was getting such pleasure out of it. And of course, you know me, when I'm walking with anybody or on my own, invariably but i meet somebody and i do get into conversations and you learn so much it's wonderful this is it i i met a couple from bournemouth this is later on uh, <laughs> what tier were they in bournemouth <laughs> they were having a nice little trip up there and i was able to introduce them to country stride and, 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 and they ever since have been avid listeners and it's wonderful when you this is how we do our marketing one at a time one person at a time drip, drip. <laughs> right let's move on this is another of your choices now mark and this is pure sheep geekery <laughs> We're talking all things Herdwick. First up, Dr. Angus Winchester, who joined us on Zoom for a virtual walk to Buttermere and to Gatesgarth Farm. And then Foundation for Common Land Executive Director Julia Aglianby talking about three generations of Herdwick. Now, the name Herdwick is interesting as well because it doesn't actually refer to the sheep. I mean, the name Herdwick simply means stock farm. It's the same name that you get as place name in other parts of England, Hardwick. Think of Bess of Hardwick, Hardwick Hall in, in Nottinghamshire, isn't it? Yes. Um, Hardwick is simply Herdwick, and it simply means a stock farm. We know from the, some of the early illustrations of Herdwick from the sort of 1790s that the sheep then were very different from the modern breed. And the modern breed, as I say, is largely a product of selective breeding by a group of farmers in the Lake District from the 1840s onwards, and this included the Nelsons at Gatescarth. It's said that in the middle mid-Victorian period, the Nelsons of Gatesgarth had 150 rams, 150 tops, wow. which they let out in the breeding season. And gradually, that group of farmers, including the Nelsons, they decide what makes a good herdwick. And basically, the sheep that we know today that are so iconic as part of the Lake District scene are a result of that selective breeding by this small group of farmers, including the Nelsons of Gatesgarth. It's quite interesting. If you go walking in the Lake District, you'll often see three sheep going around together, three generations. So you'll see the grey herdwick, yeah. You'll then see um, a sort of 
darker grey, brown, usually brown hog, and then you'll see a black lamb. And they're very much keeping these, these family groups. During that time, the mother will be introducing her lamb to the heft, and that makes it much easier for the farmer to then go and find his sheep. Your choice there, Mark, uh, of Herdwick geekery. So why did you pick that? Well, yes, first of all, Professor Angus Winchester, uh, his knowledge and research of the Buttermere Valley is amazing, but he focused in on this very important thing about the Herdwick sheep. People tend to think of the Herdwick as being a really ancient breed, but it really actually was refined at Gatescarth. And we're only talking within the last 200 years that this actually occurred. Can I just wind back, Matt? So yep. I understood the Herdwick, it was introduced by Viking settlers. But at Gayscarth, and they refined what the Vikings brought over. Oh, yes. So the animal that came over a 1,000 years ago is very different to the animal we have today, presumably. Oh, yes. There were characteristics that certainly were built on and had been built on at different parts of Cumbria. What we can see everywhere now is the herdy, absolutely is Gatescarth well, well, originated. Well. It's a, a holy place for yeah. breeding. Yeah. And so the famous sails down at Cockermouth have their roots at what went on in the valley. That's fantastic. Right, now for something completely different. This is a compilation of clips relating to fire. Uh, the first one I love, this is, um, I was chortling away behind the mic for this. This is Cumbrian publishing royalty Steve Matthews talking about one of his heroes, Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, about Rawnsley's passion for bonfires. Uh, and that's followed by a tale about how the great smuggler Lanty Slee hid his sills, as narrated by one of your Lakeland Walker writers, I think, John, George Kitching. So, Oh, George, wonderful writer, yes. Yes. Interesting in the whole thing was his enthusiasm for bonfires. Enthusiasm is a key word for him. Not only did he have to have a bonfire on the top of Skiddaw for Queen Victoria's Jubilee, but he enjoyed it so much that next year he had one for the tercentenary of the Spanish Armada. <laughs> and he kept having bonfires. And he became secretary or chairman of the National Bonfires Commission to organise bonfires. And it's one of his proudest moments was standing on the top of Skiddaw on one of the bonfire nights and looking out and being able to count 143 bonfires on the skyline, all of which he'd been instrumental in starting. But also he was a man of the people because at the bonfire they picked him up and carried him round on their shoulders and he loved that, I'm sure. So you can see this larger-than-life, hugely public-spirited man with a I suppose, a fantastically resonant voice that had to be the centre of attention wherever he went. I'm yes. sure of that. One farm, low onside farm he had for a while, and he had a still there. But apparently the story is he created a great long underground pipe to pull the steam and all the stuff away from it. So people walking past a field would see the, the, all this steam coming out of a hedge in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and hopefully not associated with low onside farm. That's ben, is that Benson and Hedges? Yeah. <laughs> Who would have said a thing like that, eh? Oh, dear. There's Rawnsley, and, I mean, I love this. The bonfires on the Skiddor. And actually, it reminds me a little bit of the... Um, What's the charity who put people up the mountains with uh, strings of lights? Well, it's organised by Lakeland Mountain Guides, isn't it? Mount yes. Lavoie's operation. But he does it to raise money for mountain rescue, I think. 
Yeah. He did it for Nepal. That's right, yeah. Uh, after the earthquake initially. Yeah. Uh, and, then I th- and then I think they've raised for Mountain Rescue and other charities um, because they had the um, string of lights along striding edge as well, didn't yes. they? Yes. It's long been a dream of mine, actually, that we could somehow get enough people together on the top of the Wainwrights to do something similar. I mean, I don't think you could do bonfires in these environmentally conscious years, but... I don't know, some kind of flare or something, and you could spread it all like the, the old beacons of old. I think it'd be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> be nice to get a, a satellite shot of that, wouldn't it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you need a clear night, but a dark one. Um, a lot of people. And a lot of people. <laughs> um, uh, it'd be all over in a, in a blink of the eye as well, but it'd be... You sound very positive about my plan there. Genius <laughs> idea, David. I really love it. I'll wait for the flames to go down. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we're moving to the south of the county now, to ends and beginnings, as former Friends of the Lake District director Ian Brodie, who we walked along the shores of Thirlmere with, talks very movingly about where he would like his ashes to be scattered. That would be an easy choice, because the people available to scatter them would probably be as old as me. <laughs> Therefore, they couldn't take them up the fell. <laughs> My mother and fathers are both on one Lake District fell. But I would put them on the Dudden Sands, because the estuary is the place where Lakeland fells come towards a stage in their life where they're renewed. And it's this thought that the water comes off the fells, brings the sands and the silts and the rocks... And then eventually, in time, those rocks will become fells again. Well, we asked that question, don't we? Where would you like your ashes scattered in the air quick fires at the end? And we've got some great answers this year, including Bill Burkett, who wanted to be burned in a Viking longboat on Little Langdale Tarn, which I thought was great. <laughs> but, but I do really like um, Ian's answer there. I think it's full of poetry, and it was lovely to walk with somebody who has done so much conservation, actually, uh, for the lakes. Talking of ashes and where they're scattered, we have a very important anniversary coming up in the first few months, I think, of 2021. Yes, January. January 2021 is the 30th anniversary of the death of Alfred Wainwright. The question we're asking in the next issue of Lakeland Walker is, um, you know, not only what is his legacy, but will his legacy endure further? He hasn't left me... Maybe it's just my generation. Certainly I had such contact with him and he was such a mentor and an influence on me that he was very central to who I was. Yeah. John, can you give us uh, some little tasters of some of the comments you've got from your writers? There's so many different aspects to Wainwright. He's been described as a grumpy old sod. Mike Arden describes him as a grumpy old sod and Mike um, had at least two encounters with him. He's been described as a misogynist. And one of the things that has struck me when I've uh, contacted all these different people for their views on his legacy is the fact that, apart from Jenny Deerham, his publisher, uh, they're all men. You know, mm-hmm. there's very little contact with females in that same depth of relationship, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I think Mike Harding summed it up best, to my mind. Mike was very much involved in the access campaigns with Benny Rothman, Tom Stevenson, of course, who did uh, so much good work, much of it behind the scenes, but also devised the Pennine Way. Um, and they, they enabled people to have the legal right of access to various places and provided the tools to do it, such as the Pennine Way. Um, but Wainwright offered um, a spiritual door. He basically said, here it is. Here's how to access it. 
I think I'm right in saying that Tom Stevenson gets a name check in the introduction to the Pennine Way Companion. Is that right? Does that ring a bell? Uh, that's quite possible. But um, no, when I did the Pennine Way, we never read the Pennine Way Companion other than as a route guide, a pure route guide. We never read all the, the assigned the blurby bits. Kind of thing. Because I've always wondered about this. You know, he, he was an active walker at the time that yeah. a lot of this political access campaigning was happening. But really, he's a taker in that respect, isn't he? He is not on the front line of the access battles that Wainwright, happened. Wainwright, you mean? Wainwright, yeah. Biggie Bum, yes. Yeah. Of course, not everybody's cut out for that, but he would have cared about this stuff. Oh, he cared quite passionately. You can tell when he talks about the, you know, the flooding of the reservoir above... Um... Cowgill. Oh, Cowgill. Yes, yes. But, you know, he talks about the flooding of Cowgill. And... He does. And afforestation, you know, he's yeah. very strong on yeah. the ugly conifers. So there is a man who cares deeply about uh, conservation and landscapes there, but he doesn't really talk about the access to them. But I wonder if joining the access campaign would have meant putting himself out there, up front, in public view, and that was not what he very was. much not him. No. You know, uh, Richard Ells talks in his book about how maybe Wainwright had um, undiagnosed Asperger's, something mm. similar, which, you know, people, a lot of people with Asperger's do have trouble relating to other people, especially people they've never met before, mm. you know, and maybe that's part of it. Yes, you're right. He would have been very uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. the idea of him on a stage talking to people is completely incomprehensible, isn't and it? And the one place that you can say he was entirely comfortable was on the fells mm. and presumably in his study yes. making his it, records. It was all in his capacity to write eloquently and yeah. state it as people felt that wanted to be up on the in these wild places. So he knew he had a very distinct role and he couldn't possibly stand in front of an audience and wouldn't. Mm. he would have screamed at the thought. Well, he just clammed up anyway. Mm. So, so he, he's actually served a very important function in keeping alive the whole purpose for why we walk on the hills or walk anywhere. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because if... If the likes of Mike and Tom Stevenson and Benny Rothman were out there winning all this access, if it wasn't for people like Wainwright, mm. there'd be nobody taking advantage of it. No. So uh, and they're working in tandem, they're complementing each other. That's it. The poles uh, apart, yeah. but it's all towards the same aim, isn't it? Uh, and there are, have been lots of other really eloquent writers. It's just Wainwright's claim the high ground or profile. Uh, yes. One thing I noticed when I'm editing the magazine is that almost all my contributors quote Wainwright and refer to him. They talk about hills. Um, Wainwright described this hill as, you know, this is Wainwright's recommended route. And I think it's maybe time we cut those apron strings, isn't it? And, I think so. And writers it, especially, uh, no offence to my writers, but we, we, we need to find our own voices. You do? Uh, um, contemporary, within the context of our current age. Doesn't that say a huge amount, really, about his legacy, that three decades after his passing... You know, and bear in mind that he's writing the books long before he dies, that you're still getting really good writers name-dropping him almost yeah. all the time. Yeah. I find that extraordinary, and, and I, it just shows the towering impression he made on creative people as well as walkers. Yeah. You know, on the next generations of writers and illustrators as well, Mark, you know. Oh, he's influenced me artistically. I think we've almost proven the point of this actually haven't we because we've spoken 
far longer about Wainwright <laughs> than anything else. So even we can't get away from him, and, and nor should we really. And we will be uh, going for a walk up to Inominate Tarn, won't we, Mark? Um, uh, the appropriate occasion. We indeed will. Right, so let's move on now. And this is Memories of Lakeland Past. And there's a couple of lovely little memories here. We're starting with Langdale lad, Bill Burkett, talking about swimming in Rob's Hole in Little Langdale. And then we're moving over to the far eastern fells with Shapite Gene Scott-Smith, who's getting very cold and very muddy in the lava. Now, in the summer when you were young, did you used to swim in this river? Yeah, this dub down below... Uh downstream of the bridge that's where we started off when we were really young because I learned to swim there you know you'd go along on your on the floor kind of paddling and get a bit deeper and a bit deeper and then you'd over your head and depth and you had to swim so that's how we learned and then after that we progressed got to Rob's Hall which is just like a couple hundred meters up the up the river here which right. is really deep it's about 30 feet deep wow and, that uh, is seriously yeah, deep yeah, yeah. <laughs> the name is supposed to come there's a very steep track above it uh-huh. And uh, Rob was supposed to be going down on his horse and cart and the horse bolted and he's supposed to have gone into Rob's hole and drowned. But uh, oh, who knows? Who knows? I've never, I've dived down there when I was a kid, yeah. carrying a rock to take me down and to try and find a horse and cart, but there's nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing down there. you remember horses when you were very young? Yeah, we, uh, I used to help out just as a kid on the Wilson Place farm and we had a, a Clydesdale Shire horse and right. uh, Jim the farmer, Jim Wilson, he, uh, he had a Massey Ferguson traction in the barn but he'd, he'd never use it, he always used the cart horse. <laughs> and, uh, you know, happy days haymaking, it was just fantastic really. Oh. whole family's out in the field, you know, it's a real feeling of, of community. Was growing up, if you wanted to go, you, kept, you got, went into the becks. Yes, And indeed. they were icy. Some of the lads used to be naughty and build dams with sods and, and, and make deeper places in some of the little gills and that. Yeah. And then you used to find all your swimming stuff was full of mud. <laughs> because there's a great pool underneath that bridge at Shab Abbey, wasn't there? There's another one under it. And there's one under the jaws of Sleddle as well. Yeah, well, that's right, yes. That was one of two podcasts, wasn't it, Mark, where we talked about lost communities that, that have been lost beneath the waves, effectively. Oh, yes, um, yes. Earlier in the year, I've been to uh, the community of Wytheburn, uh, right. lost under Felmere. Jean had this lovely memory, it will presumably go with her, of wandering around the farms in Wet Sleddle before the reservoir. And she said, I, I treasure that memory now, and, you know, popping in, having a cup of tea in each farmhouse... And that was it. And, and she knew when she was even doing that walk that that was the last time in human history wow. that that would happen. And very few places like that left. She said she was awash with tea that day. Mm. <laughs> so there must have been several farms there that she, they'd been to. But there was a community there and it linked very much uh, adjunct to the village of Chap. And like we went into Swindle as well, the adjacent mm. valley on, on our walk. And you can sense a connection with that place there, the string of farms in that valley bottom. John, do you know Swindale? I, so we walked to the postman's path there from Shap to Swindale. I'd never been there before, and I thought it was wonderful. It's one of these valleys that time has left behind. I've done a little bit of walking in those areas, um, and I've, but I've always stuck to the top. So. Right, yeah. So the, the, the valley bottoms... Um, 
Um, it is very wet. It, it completely it sounds. It sounds. All the names seem to suggest yeah. uh, <laughs> wetness. The name Sleddle interests me though because that suggests to me it suggests sledges and bringing stuff on the fills. But on it sledges. isn't. It doesn't. It means clearing. Ah. And all sleds refer to a clearing in the woods. Right. And you've got this mix of languages because we think of Thwaite as being a clearing. Yeah. That's a Viking. But the old English word slade exists in this landscape as well. Wonderful. Right, time for some music now, and we're handing over to Dr. Sue Allen, one of the great authorities on Cumbrian tunes, songs and dances, to introduce a beautiful recording of Dear Ken John Peel. It was an archive recording, recorded with a, a lot of other songs, a lot of them hunting songs, at two pubs in villages around Carlisle in 1953, with a view of preserving the songs for, for posterity. And this particular version of, of John Peel is sung by the wonderful Mickey Mosscrop. And he was a fabulous singer around lots of pubs in North Cumbria. And he gave recitations and he loved singing. His wife would accompany him on the piano. He was a tweed salesman as well and a pest officer, as he says, at getting um, malls and all the rest. And if you ever go to Grasmere, there's a bar there called Tweedy's Bar in the middle of Grasmere. And that's called after him because his nickname was Tweedy and he used to sell rolls of tweed at Grasmere Sports. So, uh, and he won prizes for singing John Peel um, at Eskdale Show and at celebrations in Colbeck. Now I've just come into the plow in and Jack Mounts here asked me what I do with these plus fours on. Well, being the pest officer, I wear plus fours. But now ever I'm finished with that work for the day, so I'm going to sing you John Peel. Day can John Peel with curtsy grey. Day can John Peel at the break of the day. Day can John Peel on his far, far away with his hand on his horn in the morning. Twas the sound of his horn brought me from my bed, and the cry of his hound as me up time fled for a field view alone. Over the wake and the dead are a fox from his lair in the morning. Then here's the John Peel with my heart and soul. Come drink to him, lads. Come fill up the bowl. We'll follow John Peel through fair or through foul. If we want a good hunt in the morning, twas the sound of his horn brought me from my bed, and the cry of his hound has me off time fled for a pill view. One of the things that I get most out of Country Stride is the ability to listen to some of the longer conversations we have and to have my mind changed, I think, about some of the issues that I thought I'd made my mind up about. And for me, this happened most of all this year in relation to rewilding. There were two conversations that made me rethink how it might be done and one of them was with James Rebanks when we talked about his English pastoral book uh, and the other was with 
Dr. Julia Aglianby, um, when we walked up onto the commons above Newlands. Uh, and we've got a couple of clips now talking about how rewilding might happen, or perhaps better describing it, how we can be more nature-friendly in our approach both to farming and also to the commons. So we're starting off with Dr. Julia Aglianby. Let's turn to looking down the valley here and we can see some hay meadows down here. You can see they've been mown already. You can see the lighter colour where um, Tom, tenant down there, will have mown his meadows. They're meadows of enormous diversity. And if we were to rewild this whole valley, we would lose that specific biodiversity of those meadows. So it's not a game where you just win by rewilding. We also have just around the corner here, and we can't quite see it, maybe if we crane our necks a little bit, we can see the Keskadale oak woodlands. There are a few ancient upland oak woodlands left in the Lake District. On commons I help manage, there's Keskadale oaks here, and then we have young wood over on Monk Rysdale on the backside of Blencathra. These are almost bonsai oak trees and immensely precious in terms of their biodiversity. And there are opportunities for increasing woodland and scrub across commons. Um, if I was to sort of fast forward and to say, well, what happens if we had 10% of the Lake District commons we allow to turn over to a more wooded vegetation? That would be an extra 6,200 hectares of woodland in the Lake District, which would be phenomenal in terms of its biodiversity. That would leave 90% of commons for grazing. The first five years that we fenced these areas off, we didn't graze them at all. I thought abandoned was better, basically. Uh, and then we had a botanist, uh, a guy called Rob Dixon, that we worked with, came to do a study of the different areas of the farm. And the least biodiverse bit of the farm was the bit that we'd abandoned for five years. It had been completely taken over by the rank grasses. And what we hadn't understood, and which I'm now really into, is basically that uh, grazing done in the right way, in a way that mimics nature, is actually better for biodiversity than no grazing at all. And, and the truth is, all around this valley, we've done a couple of crowdfunders, it's a combination of a lot of people's efforts, farmers, non-farmers, the general public, the people in the agencies trying to find pots of money to help us to do things. And it's it's good. There used to be, a, sort of 20 years ago, there was a real us and them sort of income as locals vibe in this valley, and it was a bit fractious. And uh, a lot of us have tried to rise up, put that behind us or rise above it, and um, there's a much nicer vibe where people that aren't farm, or sort of non-farming neighbours have come and helped me plant trees. There has been a coming together of the last 20 or 30 years Farmers, I think until about 10 years ago, you could just about get away with being a farmer and saying, well, I don't need to change. I don't need anyone to tell me anything. We've done this for a very long time. There's nothing wrong. It's, it's sort of abundantly clear to anybody that wants to know now that that doesn't quite cut it. <laughs> we're we're going to have to do a bit better than that. Uh, and the minute we accept that and we're prepared to meet people halfway, then it's a different conversation, isn't it? There's no need to fall out with my non-farming neighbours that want to plant trees. Where the really fruitful middle ground is, is that we're not talking about taking the best agricultural land, the most profitable agricultural land out of production. We're talking about boundaries, we're talking about wet bits, we're talking about the floodplain. Do we really need to have a big row about that and, and resist it? No, I, I would suggest that's pretty silly. <laughs> that, that 70, 80% of what all of us would want is very doable if we find the right places and we have the, we have the right... Feel. Right, yeah, the right feel and the, and the right attitude to it. So uh, increasingly now, if anybody tells me we're doing something wrong, rather than shoot off at them as I might have done uh, a long time ago and now invite them for a cup of tea I said come on I walk around tell me what I'm doing wrong and what you want me to do different and I have to say nine times out of ten 
I learn something from those exchanges and I and they do as well. Uh, yeah, and they learn as well. And and I've I've ended up some really good mates that I think once would have been uh, almost sort of sparring partners or enemies. And that I've ended up with those people coming and helping me. And uh, yeah, and five ten years down the line, you've done what they say, and you see dragonflies off your pond, and you think this is all right. I, hmm? I don't. I didn't need to fight this. There's no need. That's James Rebanks finishing that little collection of clips. And there is so much positivity in that vision that James beautifully encapsulates, I think, that says, look, if we plant up the margins, we don't want to lose the prime agricultural land and we don't need to, but if we make these 10% changes to bringing nature back into agricultural settings, we can revolutionise our landscapes. I think that's a, a really positive message and it's doable. And we got loads of message actually off the back of particularly James's podcast saying, I've been really bloody depressed this year. And you know what? That was a real breath of fresh air. And I mean, and, and you will know as well, Mark, and, and you probably, John, as well, that the Oldswater Valley and the CIC that they've got running there, they are doing amazing stuff as a community. I mean, it's almost a kind of model valley in how we might do things next. So many people involved and so many kids involved and so many schemes doing great work. The landscape can blossom on two levels. That natural ingredient, which thrives on margins. Mm. It's like roadside verges. Mm. Uh, the council's famous for mowing tight mm. to the hedge. Don't have to cut it tight to the hedge. Just do it where it's needed, at corners and so forth. Don't cut your hedges tight in the autumn. Mm. Let the berries last into the autumn so the birds have got something to eat. Mm. Think about your actions. In a landscape as diverse as, as our British landscape, it's building in that 10% landscape mm. and, and having it in the capillaries all over. Every farm can have it and everybody can be proud that they are part of the survival of the natural environment and that ensures the human race's survival. John, I'm interested as editor of Lakeland Walker, how engaged are walkers, do you think, with some of these debates? Um, I don't think many are at all. I think they've all got an interest in seeing more wildlife. I don't know if many of them focus on how we achieve that. I mean, James Rebanks has really impressed me there because he's not talking about, you know, conceding to wildlife. He's talking about working with it mm. to improve it. He's not coming from an entrenched position of some farmer, get off my land. He's saying, here's how we can be a part of it and how we can bring about a better landscape. We do try to put elements of that across in Lakeland Walker. We're very much a recreational magazine. I'm mm. conscious of that. We're, we're part of the entertainment industry. Yeah. But Charles Ross, who writes about uh, environmentally friendly gear for us, has just picked up for this next issue again. Um, on the current buzzword, which is regenerative agriculture, mm. and looking at how you look after the plants that are there. You don't thrash your crops and grub them out every year um, because the more sensitively you, you farm your arable, the more carbon you're retaining in the soil, which is good for the planet. But he's also talking about how they're looking at ways of incorporating more natural products like wool and cotton in outdoor gear. Uh, if they can find ways of using wool as an insulating fabric in jackets and things like that, then they can offer something to the Herdwick farmers 
who are currently probably getting very, very little for the fleeces. Well, I think we burned a load this year, didn't we? Did we really? Yeah. Again. Tragedy. But the, the gear companies, uh, the North Face and uh, Patagonia were particularly singled out because they're looking at regenerative agriculture as a source of material. It's a long way off seeing it in performance gears such as insulated jackets and, and waterproofs and what have you. But that's, that's something that the, the outdoor industry, even if the walkers themselves aren't very conscious of it, but the outdoor industry is leading the way in, in the fashion world because they're part of the fashion world mm. um, in, in bringing, bringing about a way of um, well, I've referred to it in the introduction there as growing our own outdoor gear and hopefully that day will come and it's, it's, all, not, it, it's not woolly thinking <laughs> he always finds a thread to get a pun in there, <laughs> yes yeah. you stitch me up every time Joel. <laughs> right well mainly to draw an end to the woolly puns we'll move on now to a, another choice of yours mark this is actually our first walk after lockdown when we went into your neck of the woods john we went into yorkshire with sheila gordon on the lady anne's way and uh, i think this is a selection that has um, personal meaning to you as well mark we're, we're at the remote lunds church uh, and then there's some wonderful bird song as well Wonderful to be inside Lunds Church. I haven't been here for a very long time. It's a solitary building in a tiny hamlet. The word Lunds means consecrated land. And it's the closest consecrated land to Cotterdale, where my grandmother was born. And no doubt many of her ancestors, and therefore my ancestors, were buried here. And there are some gravestones here. So it's a very poignant place for me. But it's an amazing little quiet spot. There's a pew, placard on the wall. Come unto me and I will give you rest. <laughs> it's raining outside, so we, we appreciate the pew. But it's a, a marvellous spot uh, in a gorgeous valley. Quiet, almost nobody ever comes here. But it's a great place to come today. Why did you pick that little clip there, Mark? I was intrigued to find out if there were any records of the Brunskills and the Metcalfs, which is another strand of the family, in that place. Um, Sheila Gordon was actually able to resource the church records, burial records, and she found that there were eight uh, of my ancestors buried in that churchyard. That was wonderful, and I'd never knew, known that for certain. A compilation of clips now about Beatrix Potter, uh, who cropped up time and time again this year. Um, so the first two voices you'll hear are Dr Penny Bradshaw, who talked to us about the children's literature of Lakeland, picking her favourite Lakes book. The second, we're going back to James Rebanks, who notes Potter's masterpieces. And the third is... Musician, heavy horseman, and um, our host for today, actually, Bill Lloyd, uh, with an anecdote about the first lady of Lakeland herself from local labourer, John Watson. I do have lots and lots of favourites, so I'll, I'll try and narrow it down. You, I <laughs> hope you have, actually. I, I do, and probably my answer will change if you ask me again in five minutes. So I'll, I'll go with the three that, that I'm thinking of at the moment. So um, I think, really, I, I, I do want to get a Beatrix Potter in there because she was very influential on my own imaginative um, growth as a child. Uh, and the one I'm going to pick as my favourite is uh, Mr Jeremy Fisher. 
And that's actually partly because that was the one that my own children, my two sons, loved most. And I used to read it to them. So it had a kind of second generation effect as I passed that love on. And I, I think it's a wonderful story. Well, this is, uh, this is a good one. Um, I nearly picked The Guide to the Lakes by Wordsworth because it says some of the most important things anybody ever, has ever said about Cumbria, about the perfect republic of shepherds and why this landscape matters in a sort of anthropological sense. But no, I'm going to say Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter because I think she's not, she's not just famous, I think she might be the best writer that we've, we've ever laid claim to. I think those books are masterpieces of economy and discipline and tightness and simplicity. And I think she's, she's almost so famous and so loved for other reasons, I think people often forget how good a writer she was. I wouldn't cross the road to meet most of the other Cumbrian great writers, but I would, I would, walk, to, I would walk to the West Coast he's, to go meet her. Fabulous. I would, I'd love to have met her. I don't know whether I'd have got on with her, but I would have loved to have met her. John used to work for Beatrix Potter. Watto, he used to work for Beatrix Potter. Now, in her latter years, Beatrix Potter was mildly eccentric. She wore funny clothes and she had a certain amount of facial hair and the children all thought she was a witch. And um, John uh, got into big trouble because um, he arrived in the uh, Beatrix Potter's yard one morning and she came out to give the orders to what was to happen and there was a besom broom leaning up against the back door of Hilltop Farm and John looked at it and said, Oh, Mrs Evis, I see you've got a new bike. <laughs> John, are you a Beatrix Potter fan? Um, I, I wouldn't claim to be. No, I had the books when I was a kid and my kids have had the books um but you know, i have no lingering attachment to them unlike say my doctor who stuff and my womble stuff fantastic but beatrix potter no however what she did for the lake district in gifting so many of the farms she was able to buy with the money from the from the books without that who knows what we'll be looking out on now and, and her work for conservation uh, yeah, kudos to the lady, but I'm not a Peter Rabbit fan. No, no. Oh, her books were <laughs> remarkable. She was a remarkable woman. She belonged in that place. And she was a rare animal, in a sense, as an author, because she made her money in her lifetime. <laughs> and she was able to use it productively, so she was able to really buy land with a firm intent of sustaining that particular culture. And that is a rare thing. As she got older, she became ever more a Cumbrian farmer. And mm. um, she, she, she was uh, a real hard farmer. Mm. She was the real deal. She was sure. the real deal. Yeah. She was. And, and what I loved as well, so we did um, another podcast talking about Harriet Martineau, another female author, uh, and an offcomer, an incomer. And she made it her ambition to become a laker and I mean actually Beatrix Potter did exactly the same thing didn't she she set herself a goal she wanted to come and be part of of the culture as you pick up there Mark um, and both these women did it you know and actually um when obviously Beatrix Potter married when she she comes up here but at the time they started becoming successful both of them were single women who make this independent move in a time when being independent as a woman wasn't always easy, and they come up here and they set up a whole independent life and become very, very commercially successful. It's also interesting that so many of the people who've, who've risen to prominence and done great things um, within and for the Cumbrian landscape are off-comers. Right, well, we're going back to Bill Lloyd for our next clip, and he's picking his favourite Lakeland day. 
And even though I have no interest in fishing, I have to say this perfect Lakeland day sounded right up my street. What would be your perfect Lakeland day? Oh, well, I've had it. I've had my perfect Lakeland day. I got up early before sunrise, down to the shore on Windermere, and went out char fishing with the fleet. And the fleet was about a dozen char boats and 20, 20 men. It tended to be men only. And uh, I was an honorary guest because I was a, a, a banjo player and a singer, and they liked that. As the dawn's rising, you're out. It's, it's very, very peaceful and quiet, but also quite exciting when you get fish. And then we'd stop for breakfast, coffee and baking sandwiches on an island somewhere. And then we'd go fishing again till lunch when there'd be a big barbecue and quite a lot of beer. And then we'd go out fishing again and come in about three or four o'clock. And the catch, all the catch was put in one place. Great disgrace if you keep one for yourself. It all went into the pot. And then the admiral of the fleet, who changed each day, would go around all the pubs and they would offer the char fish that day to the hotels because char is a great delicacy. Restaurants could charge a lot of money for it. Fresh caught that day. So there'd be a kitty of a, oh, maybe a couple of hundred pounds from the day's fishing. And then we'd go to the Queen's Arms Hotel and drink it all. It all had to be drunk. And there was a lot of singing and there was a beautiful, beautiful moment when the best fish of the day were put on a plate, a lovely old spode plate and beautifully dressed with garnish they were passed around the room of all the singers and musicians and you'd hear oohs and ahs at the beauty of these fish <laughs> and then then they go away and then we carry on drinking and uh, i do remember that particular night i got home and i have no idea how i got home <laughs> anybody had a night like bill's <laughs> <laughs> would anybody dare admit it on, yes. in a, i was in young box. farmers uh, uh, <laughs> oh oh but i was still on shandies in those days uh, if you drinking like that oh dear me dear you'd need to have a horse to take you home automatically wouldn't you <laughs> and in fact i think exactly that happened didn't it we, we learned about um john peel i think it was wasn't it he used to at the end of the night couldn't walk home they just tied him to his pony and his pony took him out. i'm not quite sure what happened at the other end because <laughs> pony presumably slept doesn't in the, you to bed. the pony slept in the stable yes, it's a lovely idea <laughs> Uh, he's a very stable person. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike myself. Oh dear. Moving very swiftly on. This is Gene <laughs> Scott Smith now. Back to Shap and the postman's path that we wandered uh, from Shap. And here we can clear up a couple of mysteries relating to Cumbrian dialect. Uh, so first we've got a clip from our recording uh, when, Mark, you asked Jean if she's a Shapite. And I don't know if you remember this, but she replies that she's a Shap shoe duck. And it, you didn't ask her anything about this, but I do have the answer. But let's listen to her first of all, because I think her voice is wonderful. Or a shapite. Is that what you call yourself? Shapite, yes. Or a shap shoe duck. Shap where the shoe ducks were down in needles and more brackens with a real bar. <laughs> there you are, listeners. Now you know. Well, nobody did know, in fact, <laughs> what that was. But I did ask her and... Jean is always accommodating about any aspects of Cumbrian dialect. And what she said is this. Shap, where they shoe ducks with darning needles and mow brackens with a rail bar. Good grief. Uh, <laughs> and she continues. It sounds a lot of nonsense, but they used to shoe ducks and geese by walking them through tar and sand when driving them to market. The second part refers to the way farmers attempted to control the bracken. They would roll it with metal bars because this bruised the roots and stopped its spread. In short, we were always referred to as shap shoe ducks. Uh, we were also described as shapites. 
But Mark, over to you on this one, because Jean was also able to solve a mystery that James Rebanks had posed to you. Oh, yes. When he was 13, his grandmother had offered him a a word that described half man, half boy. And he was, he just couldn't remember it. And he asked all sorts of people. And he was completely blank on what it was. He'd talked to you about this when we were recording. Yeah, when we did our recording uh, at his farm. And uh, I said, if, if I can find out, I'll see if I can for you, James, because I know one or two people. But fortunately, we'd arranged to meet Gene Scott Smith and being secretary of the Cumberland Dialect Society, uh, she's steeped in all such ideas. And so you give her the notion of what circumstance you were referring to. Okay, uh, somebody in their early teens who was described as being half man, half boy. And she gave me two words, bowdekite and man body. I offered them both to James and both seemed to resonate with him, but I think he eventually homed in on man body. So say that again, man body. Man body. Right. Man body. So is that a child in the body of a man? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Man body. Not a nobody, a man body. Or a bowdekite. Bowdekite was more of a mischief. Mm. A teenage mischief. Right. Which I think he was a little. Gene knew him when he was young as well. Wow. Because he was a a Strickland lad. So the youngsters from Shap went to the same schools. All right, finally then, in anticipation of a hopefully more positive year in 2021, we always ask our guests in the quick-fire questions round at the end of the podcast what one thing they would enact as Prime Minister to help the landscapes and heritage of Cumbria. So here's a short compilation of answers from, in order, Dr Penny Bradshaw, Jean Scott-Smith, Ian Brodie, Crake Valley farmer John Atkinson, Sheila Gordon and James Rebanks. I think, and this is probably to do with very pressing problems at the moment, it would be to address the situation around traffic and cars and visitors. And I'm not sure I have an actual solution to that, but I think that is such a pressing problem for the region. It needs to be tackled very quickly. I think I'll shut myself in a cupboard for a start-off. But anyway, um, no, I think they forget that the North exists and we don't get half the, the benefits that we ought to get. Because, I mean, it's a very, very wonderful part of the world and there's all the industry on the West Coast that doesn't, you know, it's sort of almost distanced from everything else. Mm, yeah. yeah. I would put immediate controls on the amount of tourism development that could take place. And they give Cumbria County Council the ease to close some of our mountain passes to through motorist. <laughs> we haven't got long, have we? <laughs> uh, well, I would uh, definitely have a chat with the uh, with George Eustace, the, the, the uh, environment new, secretary. My, my secretary, and just try and convince him that what really needs to be done, and uh, all these sort of urban experts uh, need to get up here and actually have a look? I think uh, something that's very important is, is to educate the, the, the public that go out into the landscape and make it so that it is workable for everybody to enjoy but without destroying what they go there for, really. 
I would ring Donald Trump up and I would say, Donald, I'll do a trade deal with you, no problem, but it will not involve the selling down the river of our farming, our food and our environmental standards. And if that's the cost of the deal, stuff it. Stuff it. There we go. James, again, ending that little compilation of clips. John, if you had a New Year's ambition then for how Westminster might support Cumbria, our landscapes and our, our people... What would you pick? What are the priorities for this year ahead? I, do you know what I was going to say was um, something about the, the, the transport solution that was offered there? I'd love to see the abolition of private vehicles and everybody having to use uh, publicly provided, you know, state-provided hydrogen-powered vehicles to get us to beautiful places like this. But having listened to what your guests have said down the year there, I think what I would do if I was Prime Minister, which is the... The notion that you put to them, I think I would appoint them all to the cabinet and we would start again from scratch. <laughs> yes, there's yeah. a lot to be said for rethinking a great deal of what we tend to hear from politicians because when you talk to people like James G. Banks, they actually have the answer. Buy local, support local, look after the landscape. Look after the communities. Proof, if any were needed, that uh, country stride guests should be running the country. <laughs> so many of your guests uh, are rooted here. They understand what's happening. Well, and absolutely passionate. You yeah. know, if there was another thing that came out of Country Stride for me this year is the level of passion and engagement and understanding. And you're right to flag local, Mark. Mm. Everything from the fact that the Atkinson farm there is sending their herdwick wool over to james and that you've got the candles being produced locally and i mean john we've spoken before about a bakery in your village which actually thrived during lockdown yes did great things for the community um great things for for homeless people providing food to hundreds of people who during this lockdown, have not had access to other means of support that they would have had. We should name the bakery, John. That Seasons Bakery in Ingleton. Yeah, we talked about the legacy of COVID, perhaps on walking and, and walkers, uh, and how that might have changed how we walk. But there are going to be other legacies, aren't there? One of my great hopes would be for 2021 and beyond is that those kind of virtuous local circles of business support and and food production and supply becomes much more embedded because it's been forced to some extent during lockdown. Two things happened. I mean, you've had the growth of your, your Amazons of this world, but also this growth in local, local business hubs. and local community hubs. Absolutely. And people, right at the beginning of the lockdown, started like bushfire. They suddenly villages established a group of people mm. who would support everybody and get their food for them. Yeah. That happened, and then you felt that maybe that would fall away when people would go to click and collect and so on. But that instinct is there now. Mm. It's suddenly become a, a sense of community and this wider community looking after one another. Wonderful. Let's keep heralding that. Keep talking about the good things that individuals are doing within a collective way in communities. And the more it's done, the more it's praised, the more it's elevated the more secure our supply line will be. Society has built itself on this whole thing of being able to get food from everywhere for next, and costing nothing. Just in time. Just in time, all that. Mm. Let's get back to more balanced supply lines. 
that can be done more securely by keeping it local. I'm sure listeners will know that I run a small Cumbrian publishing business. We had a terrible year at the start, but towards Christmas, the amount of people kind of supporting local, even if they aren't up here on holiday anymore, has been a real surprise and has been really heartwarming after what has been a tough year. But I mean, I know your other half, John, in the, in yeah, the village uh, there. Yeah, Steph and um, our neighbour and good friend Claire run a, a little uh, craft shop in Ingleton called Gingerbugs and Co. Um, and they've uh, really struggled when non-essential shops mm. have, uh, were forced to close down. They set up a website. That's been fantastic to see people support them as a small business you know right. people have gone out of the way to sometimes just buy a card uh, or make sure they buy the birthday presents they're selling lots of christmas presents at the moment um and it's it's quite harm, heartwarming i mean it's helped see us through certainly mm. you know um and, and and without that support from people many of whom are very very conscious of the importance of local businesses without that support i'm, I'm not sure we'd have any of us would have got through the year. So we talked about some of the politics there, but there's also been challenges as well for the National Park, um, which more directly relates it to walkers. And I'm thinking here things like traffic, overnight stays, camper vans stretched out along Wasdale, uh, and also litter. To me, it seems really strange that we've got all these uh, restrictions on movement, and as a result of which thousands of people pile into the National Park, put tents up, set fire to trees, leave litter and everything, and uh, you kind of think, hang on a minute, <laughs> isn't there a pandemic? Aren't we supposed to be having restricted movement? At the same time, it's wonderful that people are uh, staying home and they're discovering their own countryside they're discovering the fells and hopefully they'll discover how to behave among the fells to look after them mm. as we go along <clears throat> and the litter has been appalling but it's also brought out the best in in many many people i mean there's people like lindsay book who's going up scarfell pike just about every day picking litter up you know local last fell runner uh, and just does it because she loves the environment. And I think, is it, Mick Pierce goes up from the other side and sometimes they have a chat on top of the oh, lovely. of the mountain. I mean, they shouldn't have to clean up after everybody else, but there's a great job of education there to be done, isn't there? So hopefully people will discover the fells and discover how to look after them a little more. And actually England have been working on the England coast path, haven't they? Yes. And that has been a, a challenge because, of course, there's a lot of conflict on the coast. And once you create a path, it has ongoing issues because you've got natural history, you've got livestock who are utilised the coastal shore, the farmers using it, you've got potential for litter, you've got new people coming to a bit of, bit of the shoreline that they'd never come to before, and you've got land ownership with people who have always privatised their own bit of coastline. All these sort of issues come together when you're actually creating something totally new, mm. a new strand on the strand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a nice place probably to bring the conversation to a close because this is one of the greatest bit of new access that people in England will have for yeah. a generation. You know, it's a huge project that coming to its close will have the right to access almost the entire coastline of England. I like the, the fact as well that it's, it's not restricted to a single line of ways, uh, right of way. 
it's not just a dotted green line on on the map. It's actually an area is it? next to the coast. Yep, that's the thing. Because it's all because I mean, coast is is you know liable to erosion and uh, and what have you. So that there will be times when it has to be rolled Shifted. back. Mm. So rather than create a footpath, which might disappear if you create a an area, then walkers can legally step. Step away from the coast, you know. To, to Just this week, uh, Natural England have announced that the section from the Welsh border to the Scottish border of the England coast path had been negotiated. Not open formally in all of it, but it's now in place. The strategy and the negotiations have been conducted and completed. Cumbria will benefit from that. Yeah, it's my understanding as well that there is a stretch of the coast path in Cumbria that is due to open in January this year, so... Right. That's with, that, so, with that to look forward So to. Countries Try will be going out with somebody from Natural England or well, somebody... Well, you, you could go out with um, one of my uh, contributors, Ange Harker, who's been working on that project for a few years. We'll yeah. corner Angie. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, a hopeful note to end on with this great new walk, uh, and bits of it anyway, opening next year in Cumbria, and we will indeed be going out, hopefully with Ange sometime in the first part of 2021 but for now we say thank you to john for joining us again thanks john thank you it's been fantastic again and and thank you for mark oh that's me (laughs) (laughs) right well i I don't need to thank mark we should both thank david and thank you david (laughs) master of ceremonies absolutely remarkable congratulate you on a wonderful year uh, at the helm of country strike goodness me And we're delighted that we're joined for a play out by Bill Lloyd, who we featured as we talked about heavy horses. He's been very kind to host us today, and he's going to now introduce us to a tune to play us into 2021. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm going to play a tune called Through the Glen, which is uh, appropriate for uh, Lake District, even though uh, it has a more of a Scottish feel. And I got it from Mike Harding. I learned it in a pub in Lancaster at a session 25 years ago. And Mike got it from a pub in Camden Town with an Irish session. So it's a mixture of Irish, Scottish, and now here we are in Cumbria. Anyway, it's called Through the Glen. (laughs) 